This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good evening. My name is Harry Helling, and I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. Welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science webinar series. This year, we are organizing our presentations as themed three-part series showcasing the world-class research at Scripps. Tonight is the second lecture in our series focusing on the regional impacts of climate change in California and the West. It is my great pleasure, then, to introduce our second speaker in the series, Dr. Kasha Zaba. Kasha is an observational physical oceanographer whose research interests include oceanic boundary currents, El Nino Southern Oscillation, marine heat waves, physical biological interactions, and autonomous underwater gliders. Most of her research has been regionally focused on the California current system, with contributions to major oceanographic research programs at Scripps, including the California Underwater Glider Network, the California State Estimate, which is an ocean observation and modeling effort to describe the current state of ocean offshore Southern California, and the California Current Ecosystem Long-Term Ecological Research Program. Kasha is a Scripps alum, received her PhD in physical oceanography at Scripps in 2018. After an additional two years as a postdoctoral scholar, Kasha has recently taken a position as Director of Glider Operations at Marine Robotic Vehicle Systems, while also keeping her close connections to Scripps as a visiting scholar. It is my great pleasure to welcome Kasia this evening for her talk entitled, Getting Warmer, Ocean Temperatures Off the Coast of California. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I'm Catherine, I also go by Kasia, here to talk to you today about the coastal ocean off the coast of California. Um, I am representing here the engineering and the science work of a lot of people at the Instrument Development Group, or IDG, at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and um, on the industry side of things, um, representing MRV systems, which is actually where I work now. All right, so we're going to start very big at the global scale. This here is a global map of oceanic heat content trend over the upper two kilometers of the ocean, calculated over the years 2006 to 2016. And hopefully what you're noticing here is that there is a lot of spatial variability where the colors are yellow to orange to red um, is where the ocean gained heat over the course of those 10 years, where the colors are green to blue to purple is where the ocean lost heat. And so you can imagine if you sum this all up, if you integrated the entire ocean that's shown here, the overall global trend would be positive in that the ocean is gaining heat at the global scale. However, if you look at various regions in the ocean, for example, right here near Southeast Asia, up here in the North Atlantic, there is heat loss. And so the point here is that there's a lot of variability. It's not the case that the global trend is the same as a local trend or a regional trend. And um, I'm showing this here to sort of piggyback off of the talk that Professor Sarah Gilly gave a couple months ago, I think at the end of the summer, about global oceanic warming as observed at the global scale. And so in this talk here, we're going to, again, piggyback off of a lot of the concepts that she had talked about and look at things at a regional scale. 
Specifically, um, we're going to look at this region here shown in the box off the coast of um, California. The star here is more or less where San Diego is, where the Scripps Institution of Oceanography is, and where the Birch Aquarium is. And so naturally, we're interested in this region of the ocean. The local waters off the coast of California are referred to broadly as the California Current System. Um, this is one of my favorite images, satellite images of the region. Um, you can see there's a lot of swirling green um, off the coast of California. The green here is representative of chlorophyll concentration as measured from space, um, which is a bulk estimate of plankton or phytoplankton. So what this indicates, the fact that there is a lot of green off the coast of California and Oregon and Washington for that matter, um, what it means is that the, the waters off of our coast are very biologically productive. Why are they productive? Um, so this region, the California current system is referred to or is a type of Eastern boundary current upwelling system. There are several of them in the world. And the schematic here is a cartoon of the relevant physics and the biology that they impact. So an upwelling system like ours is driven by winds, specifically equatorward winds that blow roughly north to south. Those are these black arrows here above the ocean. What this wind does is it drives upwelling, um, as indicated by, by the red arrow and um, off coast by, the, by these yellow squiggly arrows here. And so upwelling brings water from the deep to the surface. And that water down deep has a lot of nutrients in it. And so it, it fertilizes, effectively fertilizes the upper ocean. And that fertilization process, if you will, um, supports a productive ecosystem. Upwelling, as it's bringing up cold, dense water to the surface of the ocean, is, is bringing cold water <laughs> uh, to the surface of the ocean. And so this mechanism maintains our mild coastal weather that we have, um, for those of us that are lucky enough to, to live by the coast. Um, our climate zone is referred to as a Mediterranean climate zone um, in that it's dry and warm and very pleasant to live in, and that has a lot to do with the fact that there's this cold body of water just offshore. Eastern boundary current upwelling systems, as I mentioned, are biologically productive, which means that there's a very active food web, including um, larger species, like in our case, fish. Uh, so the, there's very productive fishery. Here's a couple pictures from Noah Ben Adaret. And to the right is a cartoon, if you will, of, of the ecosystem of the food web. Um, and what I have circled here is climate and ocean drivers. So that's what I do. I'm a physical oceanographer. Um, and what I'm interested in is trying to understand how the ocean, the ocean climate, um, how variability in the physics affects um, the biology and then, you know, because it affects the local biology, also um, human activities and human well-being. All right, zooming out again um, to the global scale. Here is a map. Again, if you go back to, to Professor Sarah Gilly's talk from the summer, she also um, showed this map and um, talked a lot about these floats. Um, so this is the Argo array, these floats profile the upper two kilometers of the ocean. 
there are now almost 4,000 floats in the in the global ocean. These black dots in the map here represent um, where they are located today, um, as I'm recording this talk on February 24th. And so, again, there's almost 4,000 of them. The global coverage is great. And um, this observational array has fundamentally transformed how we do and understand global scale physical oceanography. However, um, for those of us that are interested in regional processes, like our California current system that I was talking about, you can see that at a regional scale, even here looking at the western coast of North America, um, if you draw a box in your region of interest, um, there's really only a couple of floats and they really only profile every 10 days. And so for, for these smaller scales, this is not necessarily the right tool. And so um, we have other tools that we use, other observational tools um, to observe and understand things at a regional scale. So zooming in on that box that I had showed, here's a, a map of California um, and the ocean adjacent to it. The red dots here are profiles over the course of a couple years from floats that were in the region. Those are the red dots. And then the they look like lines, but they're actually dots. Um, it's just a lot of dots. <laughs> in blue are from a network of gliders. Uh, there's a little cartoon of a glider shown there. And so what you'll hopefully recognize is that there are a lot more blue dots than there are red dots. In fact, it's a, it's a factor of 12 difference. Um, and so the point here is that floats are fantastic. Um, Argo network is fantastic at observing the open ocean, um, but we need different tools, in this case, the glider, um, to measure the ocean boundaries. You can see that the, the glider trajectories come up on the shelf, they get really close to shore, um, and so they're, they're able to monitor and sample the coastal ocean, which is shallower. So floats, great for monitoring global scale climate variability. Gliders, great for monitoring the regional effects of climate variability. And so another way to think about this is that gliders connect the coast to the open ocean. Um, you need the right tool for the, for the job and for the scale that you're trying to measure. Now, I don't want to give the impression that gliders are the only tools that we use to measure the coastal ocean. These are all programs that are supported by the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System, or SCOOS. You can go on their website, the URL is there, if you want to um, see some of the data or learn more about these tools. I'm assuming uh, most people are familiar, for example, with ship-based sampling. Um, so there are a lot of different people at Scripps and Beyond doing a lot of different types of coastal observations, but I am most familiar with gliders, as that's the science work that I've done, and so we'll be talking about gliders today, um, except at the end I'll talk um, for a minute about shore stations, or one shore station in particular. Okay, so the spray glider, here is a picture of one and um, a schematic of one, sort of a simplified engineering schematic of the insides of one. Gliders are a type of autonomous underwater vehicle or AUV. They weigh about 110 pounds. They're two meters or six feet approximately in length, and they have a one meter or three foot wingspan. Um, and so what that means is that they are deployable from a small boat by two people. You don't need to have a research, like global research sized ship to deploy these. Um, though you can, 
but you can also deploy them from a small boat. Um, they are buoyancy driven. And what I mean by that is if you look at the schematic down here, um, there's an external bladder and these gliders also have an internal bladder and um, the glider uses a pump to, to pump oil from the inside of the glider to the outside of the glider. And that changes its volume, which changes its density in the water. And so it profiles up and down as it changes its buoyancy. And so there are other types of AUVs, for example, that use a propeller. This does not have a propeller. And because it doesn't have a propeller, it is much more energy efficient. The glider has wings, which provide lift and allow it to fly forward. Um, it steers by changing its center of mass. The glider has several battery packs. Two of them move forward, forward and back and side to side. Um, and that allows the glider to change its pitch and change its roll and steer in the direction that the pilot intends for it to go. Um, in the wings, there are antenna. We use those for two-way iridium communication. And what that means is that um, you get near real-time data transmission, or every time the glider comes to the surface, it is able to communicate with you, you can communicate with it, um, and you can have a almost real-time sense of what's going on in the ocean. It uses GPS to navigate, and at IDG, uh, we typically deploy them for a little over 100 days um, or about three months, three to four months. So we don't just fly these around for fun. <laughs> they're out in the ocean to collect science data, which means that they're outfitted with a bunch of science sensors. The sensors sit here in the back and that little tube there is part of the, the CTD. And so a CTD is a connectivity temperature depth sensor. It measures pressure, temperature, salinity. We also measure currents and acoustic backscatter, which is a, a proxy for zooplankton. We measure chlorophyll A fluorescence, which is a proxy for, a bulk proxy for phytoplankton. Um, and we also measure dissolved oxygen. Um, there are new sensors and other historic sensors that have been integrated um, onto the spray glider. However, um, these variables listed here are the ones that we um, measure in a sustained and persistent way off the coast of California. And we also use a technique called dead reckoning to estimate depth average currents over the upper 1000 meters or one kilometer. Here is a video of a glider deployment. It'll give you a sense of um, the scale of the glider relative to humans. Um, so this is um, in Palau in the Western tropical Pacific. Here's that the um, sensor, the, the CTD back here, there's a thermistor that measures temperature um, and a conductivity cell that um, measures salinity. Uh, so the glider goes in the water, it does its first dive, a, a little test dive, um, a pretty shallow one. It's gonna come back up to the surface. It's gonna roll onto its side and stick its wing out of the water where, remember, the antenna is and it is going to communicate to the pilot and we'll get some data and make sure everything is okay. It's phoning home here. After it completes the data transmission, it's gonna roll back on to um, a flat orientation, into a flat orientation and go back down. And then it's gonna start doing its more regular dives and three to four to five months later, um, we'll come back and, and recover it. 
but it's out there for a while collecting data for us while we are back on shore. Here's a little a little cartoon of um, what you just saw in what I just explained in the previous slide. Um, so, so the dive profiles make they, the profiles in a sawtooth pattern, up and down, up and down. Um, this little cartoon just shows one dive, a one dive cycle in the way that IDG operates this platform. It goes down to one kilometer or 0.6 miles. It covers in the horizontal direction, six kilometers or 3.7 miles. And a single dive in this configuration takes six hours. Um, off the coast of California, we operate them a little more shallow. So they only go down to half a kilometer, um, travel three kilometers in the horizontal, and the dives take three hours. So we get more frequent, but um, shallower profiles off the coast of California. The gliders travel horizontally with a speed of 25 centimeters per second, which is 0.5 knots and 10 centimeters per second in the vertical. So it's pretty slow, but it's a, you can think of it as a, a slow, persistent platform that moves up and down collecting data for us over a long period of time. The glider turns on the sensors and samples the data while it's coming up, so we get um, our profile of, of science information on the ascent. And as I mentioned, the mission duration for us is over 100 days, over three months. So something that IDG has been working on recently is a next generation underwater glider or spray two. Um, as this technology has been around since the early 2000s, and as with any technology, um, at some point it's time to uh, work on a, a next version, a, a version 2.0. And so that is what Spray is undergoing right now. The engineering design and development, as well as the testing and the sea trials that then go back and inform the engineering design and development are happening at the Instrument Development Group at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Um, there is going to be a technology transition and the glider will be will go to um, MRV systems where it will be manufactured, made commercially available, and um, we will provide service and support to customers. And there are several design goals, but um, one of the main ones here is to raise the technology readiness level or TRL of the spray glider, um, allowing it to or to increase the range of users um, who have it and are capable of using it. This redesign and transition project is supported by the National Oceanographic Partnership Program, or NOP, um, which is an interagency initiative. So we've talked about the spray glider, and now I'm going to show you how we operate it off the coast of California in the California Underwater Glider Network, or CUGN, which was established in 2006. So this will be a video. Here we are down in San Diego. And here are the gliders going back and forth. They travel um, perpendicular to the coastline, moving onshore to offshore. Um, we occupy these historic Cal Coffee lines, um, which have been traditionally surveyed by ships um, since 1949. Um, but now we're doing it with robots. And so these are the, the three main lines that we occupy, line 90, line 80 out of Point Conception or Santa Barbara, and line 66.7 out of Monterey. 
And more recently, um, Dan Rudnick, Professor Dan Rudnick, has also added a, uh, a long shoreline here to measure other types of physics, as well as a northern line, line 56. All right, so how much data do we have? Over the almost 15 years of this network, um, we have collected over 45 plus glider years. That means that the gliders have been out for a cumulative sum of 45 years um, on these multiple lines. Um, they have traveled over 350,000 kilometers or 215,000 miles, which is equivalent to over eight laps around the Earth's equator. So they've been putting in the work and traveling very far. And over the in this network, we have a total of 150,000 dives, which is a lot of data to process and also learn a lot of interesting scientific facts from. And to our knowledge, this is the longest sustained glider time series um, in the world. The California Underwater Glider Network has been around for over 15 years. And what have we learned from it? First and foremost, the network, because the gliders are out all the time, has allowed us to calculate a robust high-resolution baseline of California current system physical oceanography. And what I mean by that is we now have a better, higher resolution understanding of the mean circulation patterns and water masses in the region. We have a better, high resolution baseline of the annual cycle or how our oceanic ecosystem varies from season to season to season. Um, this includes upwelling in the springtime, stratification and heating in the summer, as well as a semi annual intensification of the California undercurrent, which I'll talk about. Beyond that, because the gliders are out all the time, we have sustained monitoring of interannual anomalies, specifically of temperature. And um, I will talk about two of them, though there are others. Um, you may remember in 2014-15, there was a large marine heat wave. It was known as the blob. And then the following year after that, there was the 2015-16 El Nino, and that was associated with the subsurface warming that I'll talk about. Mean circulation and water mass patterns in the region. This here, this um, vector quiver plot, is what the mean circulation looks like off the coast of California along our three lines. Offshore, we have the equatorward California current that flows um, roughly southward. It is of subarctic origin, which means that the water that it carries is cold and fresh. Near shore, we have the poleward California undercurrent, which flows roughly northward. Um, it is of tropical origin, and so it is bringing into the region relatively warm and salty water. Uh, for the next couple slides, I'm going to focus on the data that is in the box shown here in Southern California. Um, that is roughly representative of what is happening in the Southern California plate. Okay, so moving from the mean to the annual cycle, let me walk you through this plot because I'll show it with different data a couple times. So in this plot here, we have, it's two-dimensional, we have time on the x-axis, January through December, to, to show what is happening over the course of the year. And on the y-axis, we have depth, zero to 500 meters. The color is temperature. Blues are cold, colder water, Reds are warmer water. 
So what you can see is that in the springtime, the black lines, which are isopycnals or density surfaces, um, move up towards the surface. Um, this is the, the spring transition to upwelling, where that cold, nutrient-rich water moves towards the surface. And that is because the winds are blowing stronger during that season. In the summertime, we have um, summer heating, as indicated by the sun there, um, which causes stratification in the upper ocean. Here's a, a plot of the same style. However, now it's colored by velocity, where red is poleward and blue is equatorward. And so what you'll notice is that there are there are two times in the year where you get these red bullseyes. Um, those are in the summertime and in the wintertime. And what this is, is the semi-annual intensification of that California undercurrent. And so two times during the year, that undercurrent that flows along our coast is extra strong and bringing up that warm, salty, tropical water. Interestingly, during upwelling season in the springtime, we have a reversal of that current. So that was the seasonal cycle. Now we're moving to interannual temperature anomalies or temperature anomalies that happen beyond the annual cycle and, you know, every couple of years. Um, same style plot here. So we have time on the x-axis, except now instead of showing the months of the year, we are looking at, at the years from 2007 to, to present. And on the y-axis, again, we have depth going from zero to 500 meters. And this time I'm showing temperature anomaly, where red means there is an excessive warming relative to the annual cycle, Blue means there's an excessive cooling relative to the annual cycle. And so a couple things here, you'll notice this warming here. That was the 2009-2010 El Nino. The following year, there's this cooling. That was the 2010-2011 La Nina. And then you move through time. You see this big warming here in 2014-15. That is that marine heat wave or the blob. The year after that, <laughs> you see another warming. This time it's a little bit, or a lot of it deeper. Um, this is the El Nino of 2015-16. After that, it stays warm, not as warm as these two events, but um, that that heat stuck around for, for a while afterwards. Right, so here's some labels describing what I just said. We have this shallow, warming associated with the marine heat wave. And then we have this deeper warming associated with the El Nino of 2015-16. If we draw a line through this plot at 50 meters and plot the temperature anomaly at that depth, it looks like this, the red line here. And we refer to this as our Southern California temperature index. And so here's maybe a simplified depiction of what I what we had seen in the previous slide, where 2009 to 2010, we see um, a warming due to the El Nino. The following year, we see a cooling in 2010-11 due to the La Nina. Things kind of linger around neutral, and then we see this large warming on the order of two and a half degrees due to the marine heat wave. It goes down a little bit, and then it jumps up again much higher, above three degrees, um, because of the El Nino. And then it, it persists um, 
above normal and is finally now going down. This black line, the Oceanic Nino Index plotted here is um, it's an index of temperature anomalies at the equator. And so what you'll notice, hopefully, is that before 2014, our local temperature anomalies, the red line, um, is very um, highly correlated with the, the black line, the ONI, the Oceanic Nino Index, meaning that things that are happening at the equator affect the coastal California ocean. Um, the exception here is, is this marine heat wave warming where it got warm off the coast of California, but it was, it was due to other reasons that were not necessarily related to equatorial dynamics. Right, and so if you follow this O&I through present, you can see it's now negative going into um, 2021, and that's because we are currently in a La Nina state at the equator. Zooming out a little bit here, this is what those events, those climate phenomena looked like at a larger scale. Um, on the left here, we've got the, the marine heat wave period um, in fall 2014 with um, a lot of heating in the Gulf of Alaska north of us. And the following year, we've got um, the El Nino period, winter 2015-16, um, where there is a lot of warming at the equator because it's an El Nino event. You might also remember all the headlines. <laughs> um, there was a, a lot of news, a lot of press about this. Um, people started noticing, as you can see in this first one here, during the blob event that there were a lot of red crabs washing up. Fishermen were excited because there were a lot of tropical species here. Um, and so there, there was a lot of talk about this um, in the press and in the public. So I've shown how our California underwater glider network is used to understand where the anomalies are happening. And a natural question, a subsequent question is, why are they happening? Or in other words, what caused the warming? Um, and for, for this slide, let's focus on the surface warming. So what caused the surface warming that I'm highlighting here with this box? To answer that question, we leaned on a data assimilating model. And what a data assimilating model does is it takes in real observations, in this case from gliders, which make the model more realistic. And the added value of the model is that it interpolates between sparse observations, and it also allows you to calculate heat budgets and figure out what mechanisms were relevant at what time. So what I'm showing here in this time series from mid-2013 to mid-2016 is temperature from zero to 50 meters in the ocean, so that surface layer. Uh, the thick black line is the annual cycle, so warm in the summer, cooler in the winter and spring. Uh, the thin black line is what, for that particular year or time, what, what was the temperature. And the coloring is blue if it was a, a cool anomaly and red if it was a warm anomaly for that particular time. The possible mechanisms that might drive excessive heating um, in this region are either air-sea heat flux, or in other words, excessive heat coming in from the atmosphere to the ocean, or oceanic heat advection, which in essence means that uh, the circulation and the water types, water properties that were being moved around by the ocean at the time um, brought 
warm water into the region. And so I've highlighted here in the in the lighter red time periods when the ocean was heating at an excessive rate, above average rate. Um, there are four bands shown, and then the cartoons indicate which mechanism mattered for that particular time period. And so you could see that at times it's just the oceanic heat advection that matters. Other times it's just the air-sea um, input of heat that matters. And other times it's both. <laughs> and so it's it's a complicated story. And the point is that both of the mechanisms mattered. It just um, was variable throughout this time period. What about subsurface? So now we're going to look below that upper layer and we're going to look at temperature anomalies and what caused them between 100 and 200 meters, as indicated by this box here. So again, we turn to our data assimilating model for um, this anomaly attribution study. Um, in this case, because we are deep, um, air-sea heat flux is not going to be the mechanism that is relevant. It is just going to be the oceanic heat advection or changes in circulation. And so, but what we can do is we can describe what aspects of it. Was it a north to south flow that brought in the warming? Was it an east to west flow? Or was it the, the up and down, the, the upwelling, downwelling that um, brought in excessive heat? And so as before, I'm showing the temperature annual cycle in the bold black line and the, the interannual or the actual signal um, in the thin line. Coloring means anomalously cold temperatures if it's blue, anomalously warm temperatures if it's red. And so again, I've highlighted the bands here where this particular um, box of ocean was heating excessively and I've labeled what we discovered to be the relevant mechanism. So um, it's a combination of less upwelling and more poleward flow um, that heated up this layer of ocean. And most of the heating in this case happened um, in the fall of uh, 2015 when the El Nino was present. And you can see um, in the label here that the, the mechanism that was relevant that brought in the warming was a poleward flow from the south. Here is another way to visualize that, um, that subsurface warming. So this is a map. Um, we've got our three glider lines, line 90, line 80, line 66.7. Um, the colored dots are temperature anomalies, subsurface as measured by the gliders. The background red and blue color map is from the model. Uh, this is along the 26 isopycnal, which just means that this is subsurface and does not is not interacting with the atmosphere. It's for winter of 2015-16 when the El Nino was occurring. And so hopefully what you're noticing is the, the striking warming in the southeast portion of this map. And the the pattern here, the way that it's, you know, like clinging to the coast and coming up the coast, even without showing velocity vectors over it, indicates that um, this is due to um, poleward flow coming in from the south. So why did that happen? Uh, we attribute it to changes in the California undercurrent. That's that current that flows poleward along the coast. Um, that current was bringing in more water. 
that is typically warm and salty. And so either the current was faster or broader um, during the El Nino. And it also carried with it warmer and saltier water than usual. And so what that means is that during the El Nino, and this has been observed before um, during the 1997-1998 El Nino, there was a tropical influence from the south on our California current system. Lastly, I wanted to talk about decadal temperature trends. So I've been focusing on, in the previous couple slides, interannual variability, so, so changes that happen year to year. But our time series from the gliders is only 15 years now. And so that's not really long enough to start teasing out decadal trends, especially because we have these two big climate events in the time series. And so to do that, you need a much longer time series. And fortunately for the SIO community, temperature measurements have been collected off the pier for over 100 years since um, 1916. And so that is a perfectly sufficient data set with which we can start to tease out these um, longer term decadal century long um, temperature trends. And so here are two papers that did that calculation that calculated what the linear trend was in the SIO peer temperature record from, well, in this bottom one here, it's from 1916 to 2018, so just over 100 years, um, the calculation showed that the warming trend is 0.12 degrees C per decade, which if you if you add it up over this century, that's a little over a degree. And that may not seem like a lot, it's one degree, but when you think about how big the ocean is, and how much heat that is if you're if you're integrating over a larger spatial region, it really is a lot of heat. And on top of that, um, in the in the previous slides, I had talked about warming due to marine heat waves, warming due to El Nino, and those anomalies were on the order of two, three, maybe four degrees. And so you can imagine if you take that anomaly and place it on top of a, a one degree warmer ocean, the effects can be even more dramatic than what we observed. So in summary, I prompted or kicked off this talk with a title that included the question, is, is it getting warmer off the coast of California? And through the Glider time series and through, more importantly, the Scripps peer temperature time series, the data shows that yes, yes, it is getting warmer. However, context does matter. So. What I mean by that, for example, is that we are currently in a, in a, it's a La Nina year and things are cooling down. However, that doesn't mean that we are not getting warmer anymore. It just means that we are cooling right now. But if you take that cooling in the context of the longer time series, be it 15 years or 100 years, um, it still means that the trend is warming. And so we need to keep monitoring to, to better understand these trends. I hope I've convinced you that there is tremendous scientific value to the sustained ocean monitoring programs that we have at Scripps and beyond. So there's the floats that are really great for understanding global variability. We've got our gliders that are great for understanding regional variability, specifically in boundary currents. Um, and then we also talked a little bit about the pier shore station, which is extremely long duration at over 100 years. And we've learned about a lot of very valuable things from that as well. Um, these data that I talked about are 
even more valuable um, when they're integrated into a model, a modeling observing system. If you if you assimilate that data into models, you can start doing things like anomaly attribution that we talked about. So identifying the mechanisms of oceanic temperature change, and you can also start doing predictions. So together, these tools are already very valuable, but together in a modeling observing system, they're even more valuable. And thank you, and I'm happy to take any questions. Natasha, thank you for a wonderful talk. That was really fascinating. I know we've all uh, watched with wonder things like the marine heat wave, and it's really nice to have the context that you provide of how we, how we measure that and how we understand it. Um, there are actually a fair number of questions. Um, several of them relate to the glider profiling work that's done. So the first one is, um, why off the California coast are the glider uh, dive depths shallower? Why are they shallower off the coast of California? Right. So off the coast of California, in our in our observational network here, we profile down to 500 meters or half a kilometer as opposed to a thousand meters, which they're capable of. Um, and that, I think, is simply because we're we're more interested in those upper ocean physics. And so it is it's more valuable for us to have more profiles of, you know, the upper 500 meters rather than have less profiles, but to go deeper because we're interested in that that upper 500 meters. Um, and then a question, um, again, related to gliders, um, and this is just uh, uh, sort of the logistics of gliders. Uh, how long does it take for them to transmit their data? How long are they at the surface before they, um, they embark on their next dive? It takes about up to 10 minutes, um, but usually no more than 10 minutes, um, which is great because that is, they're the most vulnerable when they're at the surface. You can think about, you know, especially in the Southern California Bight, um, there's a lot of shipping lanes and things like that. So the less time we spend at the surface, the better. Um, and over time, it used to be a little bit longer, but over time that transmission time has decreased and decreased and we're down to just a couple minutes now. And then um, again, just about um, plans um, within the um, instrument development group um, for glider deployments from Scripps. Are there any plans for more uh, glider monitoring uh, parallel to the coastline? Parallel to the coastline. So there, there is the one along shoreline that's maintained now, um, and we're getting some interesting data from that. Um, but regarding expansion of the network, I believe. Uh, Professor Dan Rudnick's sort of next goal would actually be to go south and do do another perpendicular line to the coast um, off the coast of Baja, Mexico, about Baja, California, Mexico. Um, as you saw in the talk, there's the what happens south of us influences our region a lot. And so it's important to to get some measurements um, to the south of San Diego. So do you think um, uh, that uh gliders and floats will ever replace ships? I know we used to do all, almost all of our measurements on shipboard. Um, are, is this the way of the future, autonomous vehicles? I do not think that they'll replace ships. I think they, I think glider and float observations um, sort of beautifully augment ship observations where you can just, you know, get more of them, get more data quickly. But there are things that ships do that gliders and floats are not going to be able to do in the in the near future at least um especially having to do with biological sampling and i think in biological oceanography there's a lot of instances where you physically need a sample of water uh for example and gliders can't do that so i don't think ships are going away 
And here's a great question related to that parallel to the coast question, I think. Um, and they're highly complimentary. Um, send you, uh, tell, tell you you did a great job. Uh, but how far north and south from California uh, were those warmer temperatures that we saw in the marine heat wave conditions? Uh, all the way up the coast. Um, during the marine heat wave, for example, um, most of the warming was in the Gulf of Alaska. So it was this really strange time where most of the Northeast Pacific Ocean was was warming up, though I will say that over that large region, it was different times over the course of those couple of years that the different regions experienced the heat stress. But um, yeah, all the way up to Alaska. <laughs> um, here's another glider question. Uh, are they used elsewhere, for example, uh, by Huey on the East Coast? Great question. Yeah, they are actually used by Hui. Um, oh, we should say who Hui is for those who are was, not. Yeah, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. That's right. Um, yeah, so one of Professor Dan Rednick's former students now runs glider ops on the East Coast, and he he runs um, a network in the Gulf Stream, which is challenging in a very different way that we don't have to deal with the gulf stream is the gulf stream excuse me is a much stronger current than the currents we have off the coast of california and so over there you don't you can't just go back and forth because you get swept downstream and so he has a, a different way of observing where he does actually get swept downstream but he goes back and forth um and then on our coast there's colleagues who do observations um off the coast of oregon and washington Another great question, I think, can on-land conditions such as droughts also be reflected in the ocean? So I guess in, in the glider data that you guys are collecting. Yeah, I think so. If droughts are driven by by atmospheric anomalies and those same atmospheric anomalies can um, influence the ocean. So yes, definitely. Um, now here's a here's a question that is a little more complicated. Are ocean atmosphere exchange events spatially constrained so that the blob, a somewhat local event, um, although you just explained that it maybe wasn't all that local, um, was affected by similar scale uh, exchange events, I guess by by ocean exchange events, ocean water exchange? So is the question, to, to what extent did the atmosphere matter and to what extent did? Yes like oceanic heat advection matter? I think that's the question, yes. Okay, yeah, it all mattered. <laughs> um, but you can imagine when we do these, we call them heat budgets. And so you're trying to calculate and quantify what is the influence of the atmosphere? What is the influence of the ocean? What is the influence of these very specific mechanisms? And so, so what we found for our region is that, again, all of it mattered. It just kind of varied and was all over the place. And the different mechanisms mattered at different times and also in different locations. So if when I did a heat budget, you know, for Southern California, for the Southern California bite, those anomalies and the, the physics that drove them were different slightly than the ones that drove the anomalies off the Central California coast, for example. So it's, it's very spatially variable. Yeah, it's much more complex than I think one might imagine when just looking at it, um, you know, sort of uh, as a as a novice and thinking, oh, the you know, the ocean is warming because the atmosphere is warming. It's really quite a bit more complicated. Uh, another compliment on your presentation. Um, they said one slide showing the uh, California Underwater Glider Network video. There were a few gliders which deviated from the main path before uh, coming back in line. And what were the cause of those deviations? 
Yeah. So gliders are slow. They can only travel at a speed of, well, for us, we we operate them at a speed of 25 centimeters a second or half a knot. You can imagine that there are currents in the ocean that are much stronger than that. And so off the coast of California, or really off of any coast, sometimes you'll get um, these kind of vortices, circular, circular rotating pieces of water called eddies. And so if you get your glider stuck in an eddy, you, you go off the line. Um, I'm actually piloting a glider right now and I'm currently stuck in an eddy (laughs) about 400 kilometers off the coast of San Diego. So, um, there are some piloting challenges associated with strong currents. And, um, in that video, you might've noticed that it was harder to stay on the line. There were more deviations on the northern lines than there were than there were on the southern lines. And that's because there, there's more eddies up there and the circulation's more variable. So it's a little bit more challenging to pilot, for example, out of Monterey Bay than out of San Diego. There's another question that's more about the atmospheric controls on uh, on upwelling. What are the determinants of the um, of the southern the winds, uh, the southward winds of off the California coast? which control the upwelling. So, so they're asking, you know, why are we having those, I guess, northerly winds that are driving the water offshore and resulting in upwelling? Under, under normal conditions or under during the anomalies? I think it's, it's not specific. So um, I think, I think under normal conditions, normal upwelling conditions. Yeah. So under under normal conditions, um, the sort of high low pressure systems in the atmosphere on average are are set up or sit like oriented in such a way that drives these winds that go roughly north to south um, along our coast. Um, What those winds do, if you if you consider rotation of the earth is they push water offshore at the surface. Um, You cannot have a vacuum of no water or (laughs) anything like that at the coast. And so what happens is water gets pulled up from below um, and fills in the water that's been pushed offshore. Um, And so that's kind of the the normal upwelling condition or cycle. Um, During anomalous events, like the marine heat wave, for example, and sometimes during El Nino's, what happens is those like high, low pressure ridges move around in the atmosphere. And so that changes the wind patterns um, and that therefore changes the upwelling conditions. I don't know if you guys remember, but it was a very, during 2014, it was kind of a weird, warm, stagnant, not windy, not cloudy time. Um, And that had to do with these larger scale um, atmospheric changes that had happened. And so then I have um, a question uh, that's uh, probably not the favorite topic of people who operate glider networks. Um, What's the fatality rate of gliders due to uh, increased shipping traffic uh, coming in and out of California ports? Um, Do you have do you end up with damaged or lost gliders? Yeah, we do lose gliders every once in a while, unfortunately. Um, They're. Professor Dan Rennick wrote a paper doing sort of a, a statistical overview of how well the fleet had done. Um, and this was for, for about 10 years. He had done the calculation for 2004 to 2014. And over that time period, we had lost nine gliders. Um, so we typically have 10 gliders in the water at a time, which means we're on average, or at least for that time period, losing like one glider a year. Um, so yeah, it happens. Ship strikes happen. Mechanical failures happen. Um, and you, you don't get them all back, but our track record is, is pretty good. All things considered. 
Yeah, that's less than I think I, I might have expected. So here's a very, very, um, you know, uh, big question. What are the implications of higher ocean temperatures for CO2 absorptions, absorption in the ocean? Oh, wow. Um, we're going to have to get a biogeochemical person on the call to answer that question. Um, I am not exactly sure how the how temperature is related to CO2 absorption. Um, but I will tell you that we're planning on integrating more of those biogeochemical sensors onto the gliders. And so um, those are things that we hopefully in the coming years we'll be able to start measuring. Here, trying to get back to the question about the controls on the heat anomaly. And so mm -hmm. the question is rather than the heat anomaly being created by a broad condition in the atmosphere and a spatially broad advection, is there any mechanism that focuses or concentrates the physical process in a localized area? I'll answer the question this way. <laughs> um, so with, with El Nino's, for example, um, there are three known mechanisms by which um, equatorial anomalies cause anomalies off the coast of California. Um, one is advection, so water moves up, warm water moves up from the south to, to our region. Another region or another method is, or mechanism, excuse me, is coastally trapped waves. So you have like a perturbation down at the equator and that travels up the coast and perturbs our conditions off the coast of California. Um, and then another me mechanism beyond that is atmospheric teleconnections. So you'll get some weather anomalies at the equator, those propagate north and south, and those affect, affect our region here. So I guess, yeah, I, those, are, those are mechanisms by which anomalies from somewhere else can be transmitted and focused on our region off the coast of California. That was a great explanation, Kasha. Thank you very much. And this is one last question, and I um, admit that I'm curious about this myself, since you just said that you're currently uh, operating a glider and stuck in an eddy. Um, so this question is, can an onshore operator person control the gliders, or is it all GPS computer program controlled going out and returning? So I'm really curious how much monitoring you actually do as someone who's currently uh, currently driving a glider. Yeah, a lot of it is automated. Um, the engineers at the Instrument Development Group are very smart individuals who have written a lot of logic into the, the flight control of the glider. Um, but there are things as a pilot that you can do. You can you can change the way you're steering or fighting the currents um, and things like that. So I, when I'm piloting, I probably check on it about twice a day, just you know, see how it's doing and see if I need to tell it to do anything differently. And um, the, the discrepancy there or the differences when when you're shallow or when you're about to do a recovery or you're about to do a deployment, um, then you keep a closer eye on it and probably tweak more of the parameters. But um, when you're out in the open ocean, um, they typically do, do pretty well on their own in an automated sense. Well, thank you so much. That was a really interesting talk. Uh, good luck with your uh, glider stuck in the eddy. Good luck with your new position. Um, and we really, really appreciate you taking time to uh, join us and present in this speaker series. So thanks very much, Kasha. I know uh, if people were here in person, they would be uh, applauding you. And um, we look forward to seeing this online. Uh, this can be seen at UCSD TV forward slash ocean science for those of you who might want to pass this information on to others who would like to watch this, uh, the recorded version of this talk. And thank you all for being here.
Thank you, Kasha. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.